Hello and welcome to The Artiste, a podcast series where I delve into the lives and craft of an artiste. My name is Luke Gibson. Today's guest is an internationally published author of three novels, with a fourth to be released in about six months' time. He held various roles including script producer, story editor, script editor in script development, and of course writer on television programs such as Neighbours, Something in the Air, Sea Change, Raw FM, Home and Away, and Nowhere Boys. As if that isn't enough, he is a produced playwright with several of his pieces having been performed by various theatre companies. Welcome to the program, Luke Devonish. Thank you, Luke. Lovely to be here. Thank you for coming along. Now, I've got to talk to you about our name. Growing up, I thought I was the only Mm. Luke. Did you have that similar kind of thing I happening? I did. The only Luke in the village. I didn't know any other Lukes <laughs> when I was around. None at was all. It, no, none at all. I was. It was. A, I don't think I met another Luke until I reckon university. I don't think I met any in high school. I was like a yeah. It just added to my torment really that I was just walking around with this name that was you know not like everyone else's. So our history. The the, the good thing about this podcast series is that there's a connection between myself. And the guest, it's not a random person who I haven't met before. Our connection is Grundy's or Fremantle Media, as it was then known. Um, Now, you used to work for Neighbours. Now, Mm. for someone who's just um, landed on planet Earth, (laughs) give me a brief synopsis of Neighbours. Not just the story, but the story of the story and how internationally acclaimed and recognised it is. Gosh, where to begin? All right, well, the word I like to use for it is it's a television juggernaut. It's been going since 1985 um, and there's not that many shows that can can claim that sort of vintage. It's been going without pause since 1985. It's a daily soap opera. Um, uh, It's quintessentially Aussie in both good and bad and what that might mean. For a long time it encapsulated what we like to think about ourselves as Australians. Neighbours really represented that. Right. So that might be very white bread, Mm. uh, very, very middle suburbia, uh, very cheery, very blue skies, uh, very optimistic, very positive, pretty, pretty much, with occasional dashes of ghastly. That's a pretty. That's a, <laughs> that's what neighbours is. A dash of horrendous, to you know, leaven out all the all the all the cheery all the cheery stuff. But neighbours has evolved over the years. It's still cheery and positive and blue skies. Yeah. But it is a lot more diverse. It's a lot. It goes to certain story territory that we weren't actually allowed to do in my time on the show. There were certain no-go areas. 
Um, nowadays, I don't seem to have that trouble. Right. Um, which I think is just a sign of television and the way it has evolved and audience expectations and the audience that watches it uh, have got very clear expectations about what they do and do not want. Okay. And what they don't want is exclusiveness or exclusion in television anymore. Right. And and how do you find that information out? Is it it's through polls? Um, what kind of research? Oh, when, yeah, when I was on the show, yeah, we did a lot of audience re- uh, research and they were very clear on what they liked and what they didn't like. But now it's really just the zeitgeist. I mean, um, it's sort of you have to have your head in the sand not to really know, if you're working in television, yes. not to know what people are much more enthusiastic about, particularly a younger audience. Mm. So what they want to see is a sense of, it's interesting what Neighbours is currently using, right, as its um, as its, little, its slogan is everyone's welcome on Ramsey Street. That's what they're saying. And I reckon that's AI, whoever thought of that, give them an elephant stamp because it's brilliant. <laughs> but it's so true about why the show has lasted for 35 years. It's because it is a show for everyone if you choose to engage with it. Yes. You're going to find yourself in Ramsey Street and you're going to find something you like in Ramsey Street. It's such a vast amount of story and character that gets thrown through the show every week that it doesn't matter if you don't like that one or you don't like her, you're probably going to like him and you're probably going to like that story. You know, there's right. something for everyone. Okay. That's one of the reasons for its incredible success. Now, when I was there, I worked on various reality shows, quiz shows, etc. It's a big um, kind of open plan office. I would look across... <laughs> Quite often, and see you all of your story department going into this big rectangle room. And I wondered what happens in there. So, mm. run me through in your time there what happens in that rectangle room with the door shut. Yes, and I should also mention that room had bars on the windows. <laughs> it did. I remember that now. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't to stop people coming in. <laughs> So that was that's the engine room for the whole show. It's, it's, what's, it's called the story room, is what we call it. Um, at any time, there could be six, five, whatever, four people in there working on the generation of a week's worth of stories. So um, the week would kick off on a Monday morning when the whole team, the script and story team, and there'd be about 10 people, would sit around and just do a bit of a shoot in the breeze, chew in the fat type session for half an hour or whatever. And that might be picking up on a conversation that we began the previous Friday. And what right. the conversation was about was everything that's happening on Ramsey Street. And so we would all of us be carrying in our minds just the collective stories, what was going on and where we were up to in the plot. Um, and that's one of the things that's required of you if you're working on the show. You've just got 25 characters permanently in your brain and you know exactly what they're doing at this moment, okay. where we're up to in the plot. Right. So on a Mondays we just pick that up. We continue and we just decide where we're going to take these plots, these characters for five episodes. They now do six episodes a week, which yeah. is um, which blows my mind a bit because I've got to say five was hard enough. <laughs> so six is, you know, that's nervous breakdown time. But yes. however, but it was fun. The conversations were, uh, excuse my French, piss funny. We, you probably heard us laughing a lot in there because we were very irreverent. We were very politically incorrect, but you sort of need to be in order just to have complete freedom to say whatever in order to get the very best story ideas to come to the surface and rise to the top. And the best ones were the ones where everyone went, oh, Jesus, that's good. And I used to get very, very, like very, very, very um, enthusiastic and excited when a really good idea came up. I mean, I you know, threw a lot of them out there myself, yeah. but so did everyone really, and mm. we all had collective ownership of it. So we'd be doing that. That was a Monday morning. Then the, then we'd sort of fall, you know, break away and there'd be the core team and they were tasked with the job of just plotting out 
five episodes of the show, and they do it scene by scene by scene by scene. Wow. Scene How intricate scene. would that have been? Extremely. It is. It's like what to compare it to, like an extremely elaborate cake when you've got 400 ingredients, really, into sort of putting them all together. A curry, maybe. And did you have a big um, whiteboard? Yes. Like Multiples. And, and you were um, plotting how far in the future? A year ahead. Okay. So uh, in terms of we had, a, we had a, a year's worth of weeks on the whiteboards that were around that room. So at any point we could look up, you know, we might be sitting in October 2019 and you could look ahead and you can see, um, you know, September 2020 and you can look it up there and go, all right. And we'd sort of put key things at certain weeks. So we might know, for example, that an actor's contract is coming to an end and they're choosing to lose, to leave. So we put that up there. We go, Lou is leaving. Yes. And as we get closer, we might go, we might change that and evolve that into Lou is murdered. <laughs> <laughs> or we might evolve that again as we get closer and go, Lou gets married and lives happily ever after. Right. So as ideas would come up, we, so it was really good to work towards certain things ahead. We always knew when weddings were coming up, we'd plan them ahead. Um, Did you have to knock off a wedding like every quarter, every three uh, months or we, so? We usually aim for about, at that time, about two weddings a year was okay. considered good. More than that gets excessive. Right. Um, not not through cost, but through audience credulity, really. And <laughs> for every good wedding, there has to be a lousy wedding in terms of, in terms of you know, it all goes horrendously wrong, one of those weddings. Right. And then you give the, the audience uh, the counter wedding later on in the year, which would be where everything goes beautiful and saw hearts and flowers. So we'd have those. There'd be, you know, there would be deaths planned. Yes. You kill off one major character a year, usually, um, sometimes more. And, you know, less major characters, they're all right. Wholesale slaughter, they're okay. and get rid of them whenever you want. <laughs> but the major deaths are always impacting. Um, we'd always, you know, we'd always put a lot of thought into it. Particularly if we knew an actor was going and we decided, all right, we're going to kill him. What's the best idea you came up with oh. in one of those meetings? Oh, I know there's Please. thousands, yeah. <laughs> but could you, or one, two, or three? Well, the best, best idea. Ideas. I don't know the best. I always remember the worst ideas. All right. The best idea. I don't know. The best. I couldn't give you the best because uh, I couldn't, but I can tell you the worst. Please. <laughs> I can tell you some of the worst. Please do. Let me think. One of my, one of my absolute howlers, and this was done, right, was when uh, I decided, because Paul Robinson, the character Paul Robinson, long character, long been on. It, since episode one, yes, um, he's had he's sired multiple children, bastards and not, um, <laughs> all over the place. And um, we've always we always kept in a, in a tally in our mind all the kids, right, where they were and where how we many. See them. I forget. I think he's had at least six, uh, and there may be more by now because I've been on the show for a while. <laughs> but so there were at least six, and there were these. There was a pair of twins up there, twin boys that were born at one point, right, <laughs> in the in the eighties. And uh, in the when we were doing this, what was the early two thousands? We decided these boys are coming back. It's time for bring these twins back, right? Really? Yeah. But of course, you know they, they were last seen as babies. So um, Luke decided. Luke decided or proposed that we do a classic story, and this is a story I've. Um, Rung dry in my fiction, I might add too. Right? We do good twin, evil twin because I'm a big believer in the soap classics, Luke. A big believer. I've based my whole career on what I call soap classics. So we did good twin, evil twin with the same one actor playing both roles. Brilliant. Look, look good on paper. I've got to say that story. But that story was the beginning of the rot setting in, actually, for uh, for my uh, for my my particular period, my regime on the show. Yeah, yeah. The beginning of the end. Yeah, the audience didn't 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 embrace that story as enthusiastically as they had embraced the stories that had proceeded to it. So it was the worst idea yet it still got oh, yeah, produced. God. Oh, and, yeah. And no, made. we were all behind it. We were all going, no, this is fantastic. This is brilliant. So um, I think one of the tw- I think one of the twin brothers murdered the other twin and then master- 
berated as the twin. I think that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> and he might have knocked off a couple of the other characters. I think he, I think he sealed, or that he was. We were led to believe that he'd sealed Connor up in a coffin and had buried him in one of the backyards in Ramsey Street. I think that's what happened. Fantastic. And then it was eventually exhumed, and and there was like a joke in it in the coffin <laughs> or something else. And, and Connor, the mystery of Connor was remained. Where's Connor? What's happened to Connor? And did you get something then? Did you get an email saying, "Oh, look, <laughs> we need you to come into our office to have a chat"? No, it was just it was time to move on. No, we were all mad. We'd all gone insane. <laughs> so the executive producer was very very much on board at that time. We all were. We all thought it was great. It was really the audience testing uh, that came a little later on, started to tell us that we'd, you know, uh-uh, we got <laughs> too far. We might have, you know, swallowed a bit. Yeah, gone a bit wrong. So let's go backwards. How and when did you develop a passion for writing? When did that start? Oh, when I was about 14, 13 or 14. And why? How did it, how did it happen? Um, because I had, a, uh, I had an English teacher who told me I was good. All right. And uh, in terms of, I've always, I'd always had a, well, I'd been aware from about the age of 12, 13 that I was good with words, but in terms Could you of, use the word you had a flair for writing? I, I will use that if you're going to put it in my mouth. I'll use it. <laughs> I think I did. But yeah. I was, well, I was gobby. I was gobby, right. But, you know, shy gobby. Okay. Shy gobby. So, um, I, my mouth was a good sort of way of just deflecting anyone that thought I was a piece of. Okay. I had a gob on me. Right. right. And, in, and I went to a very bogan high school. Yep. I hate to call it that. I shouldn't really. It's actually a decent school, but you know, it was you know, it was a bit rough and tough. Right. So um, having a gob was helpful. And so an English teacher at that time, Miss Birkin, a lovely woman, she recognised something in me in year nine English, going into year ten English, that I could just uh, what I was speaking was also what I was writing in assignments and things, and she just fanned the flames. And it was the first time really that any teacher had actually said, oh, yeah, this, you can do that. You should do more of that. And so because she did that, I did more of that and continued to do more of that, and to be honest, to the exclusion of all other things, which is <laughs> the story of my life, really. But yeah, yeah. In high school anyway, I just did. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. So, so much. So then you've done year 12. And you go straight into Curtin University? Straight to uni, yeah. Doing what? What was the course? I did a BA English in brackets, so it was meant that I did a major in creative writing. Um, I was hell-bent on getting into that course, you know, that was the only one for me. Got in by the skin of my teeth because I didn't really do that much work at high school. I I was writing crazy, but it was all like the detriment of other things when I should have been... You know, doing homework, I wasn't. I was just writing. So, um, but that actually did end up getting me in, which was good. Um, I just got in. I don't know how. My dad had to have a conversation. I think. With <laughs> no, he really did. It, wow. Yeah, no, he really did at the at the university. And um, I'd won a writing prize in year twelve, and it happened to be judged by the lecturers at the university. Thank Christ! Brilliant. That really got me in. Yeah, that really did it. But once I was in uni, he was like, "No, stopping me." And did you have, when you got into uni, did you have an end game? Once I do this course, I want to be such and such kind yeah. of a writer? What, what was your thinking? Be a playwright. That's what I was okay. thinking. Yeah. Okay, which is what you ended up doing. Yeah. So your writing process, everyone has a different way of doing things. Do you have all of the information in your head? When you want to write, do you know what the end result is before you start writing? And how do you, you know, do you do it on the train? Do you do it in a house? Can you do it anywhere? Or do you have to be at a certain point um, in a certain room 
at a certain time on a certain day to knock it off. Yeah, I hate all that crap. (laughs) (laughs) It's all rubbish. So one of the great things about working in a soap opera, which I've done many years of, don't do it anymore, I should say. Yes. And I actually left Neighbours quite a while back, 12 years ago. Okay, That long ago? Yeah, it is actually, yeah. And I did not look back. I had a period on Home and Away, and that wasn't as much fun, but I didn't look back from that either. Yeah, Neighbours right. was fantastic. But the great thing about working on those shows is um, the tyranny of the deadline. It simply has to be done by this time, and there's no getting around it. It has to, You have to deliver a script to the production crew on this day, at this hour. It has to be there, and it has to be great. And if it's not great, um, you're going to be bullied into submission, Maybe not so much now, but in those days it was horrendous. Was it? Oh, vile, terrible, okay. terrible. It was not a great. It wasn't good. Aspects of <laughs> aspects of the production of the show behind right. the scenes. Not great. Not okay. great. Yeah, not great. Um, but that was before you know things like bullying were up in open discussion. I've got to say. Oh, what, how did we get into this territory? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, Grundy's was very old school, but um, I suspect that Fremantle, as it is now, is not. Yes. Is not, yes. all right? But Grundy's was a relic from the 60s and I was working there in the noughties and it could have in many ways have still been the 60s. This may have been your own experience, I don't know. And um, Things were nicer in quiz show land and reality TV land where you are. Yeah, and we had um, decent budgets as well. Yeah, well, neighbours, yeah, well, they were pretty lean and mean. But, um, mm. but you know, part of it was in order to get that much television out, it sort of had to be run on a military level. Right. And so in the... We were very nice at the script office because I wasn't going to have any of that sort of crap to deal with because that's no good for creative people. No. They just have to be treated very lovingly. I want to paraphrase your um, what I see as your different phases as an adult. Like you've been a playwright. Mm. There was the playwright phase. Yep. And then it's kind of TV writing slash lecturing, kind of lecturing towards the end of that. Yeah. And then the third phase is the lecturing continuing, but as a published novelist. Yeah. So playwright, talk talk to me. You moved over from um, Perth yeah. to Melbourne to study further or to become a playwright no, or both? Ha- to be a playwright, I had stars in my eyes. Um, just came out determined that I was going to do that over here. Uh, and actually it, it was doable and it is doable in Melbourne, still is a possible thing. Um, it's, we've got a very supportive um, French theatre environment here in Melbourne. We always have really, well, for a long time anyway. Yes. It's not... You know, it's not impossible to get a show up for not a lot of money. You know, yes. you can hire a venue for not much. You can get a, you can get stuff together here, and particularly if you're younger, like I was, only in my early twenties, and you gravitate to other people who have a similar age and similar disposition. You know, and there's a lot of people that want to make theatre, lots of actors, lots of writers, lots of people that want make want to make things happen. So that I don't know, it must have been magnetic. I just met people quite easily, really, you know. I don't know. I can't even remember how, really, but it just seemed to happen. I entered competitions and things. That was a good way of, like, just, you know, something would be happening, some development thing for a play. You'd go along. You'd meet people that way. So I think that's how it happened. And that was pre-internet times as well. It was, yeah. So uh, the, the, the process, I would, this is my kind of guess, it would be harder to earn money as a playwright than even as a published novelist or working uh, as a writer in TV. Yeah. Because, I don't know, you, you think playwriting, you think Melbourne Theatre Company, uh, you think of some of the fringe theatres around there, you think of the, the Comedy Festival and other fringe theatre, but there seems to be a limit of what can be put on. You mm. know, if everyone 
who was a playwright had something put on, no one would go and see it because there'd be too much on. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, for all that, though, it's amazing how much is put on in this city and generally across the country. It's gobsmacking, actually, how much is done in from little tiny rooms to the main stages that we might have at MTC and elsewhere in the Arts Centre. So while you're talking about that, run me through as part of that how many published plays you had done and the kind of audience, like is it, you know, uh, a 20-seat theatre right through to a 300-seat theatre? I've done the full gamut, yeah. So I've done the little tiny ones. We did one in a converted warehouse that we flooded. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just to make people feel uncomfortable, or that was actually part of the uh, part scene. of the experience. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very fringy theatre thing to do. Yeah, yeah, flood it. Yeah, so the audience was sitting there in bleachers, and they were very aware of the water, and they were hyper aware of the actors who were uh, up to their up to their calves in water sloshing around, and they were hyper aware of the lights. <laughs> Hanging above. I don't know if we get away with that now. No. But we did in the, in the early 90s there. It was, it was considered okay. So that was, you know, that's very uber-fringy thing to do. Yes. To do that. It was a great play. It went really well. Um, so I've done the little ones. I've done, I've done, I've had a show. I had a show at the Adelaide Festival. That was a large, quite a large venue. And that went to um, what was then the Playbox Theatre, which is now the Malthouse here. Yes. At the, uh, at the Beckett, the main, is it the Beckett? No, the Merlin, the main one. Right. The big fat one which seats about, I don't know, about 450. It's pretty big. So I suppose I've experienced what that is. It, and, but it's, I, I don't prefer one or the, over the other. It's still nerve-wracking to be the playwright whose work is down there being performed and you're sitting up there. And um, me, I was always hyper-aware of every ripple in the audience, every reaction, every, <laughs> every line that wasn't working on that night but yes. had worked the night before. Why, why? That sort of thing. Um, but loved it. Loved all that. Haven't done it for a while. Happily go and do it again. I'll get serious and organised at some point when I've spat out the next book and I'll just rethink about how I'm going to get a play up there and I don't want to fart around in the fringe. It'll be, you know, always aim, aim big, Luke. Aim, aim big. <laughs> always. Yeah, always aim big. I mean, actually to get a, you know, if you get a play of yours produced at the Melbourne Theatre Company, for example, it's extremely lucrative. It's not, you know, it's a, that's a good gig. It's a good gig. You know, Run me through generically what kind of box office percentage are you getting? 20? 10%. It, it is 10%. 10%. Okay. Flat 10, yeah. But in a, in a theatre that seats 400, do the maths. Yes. And if it's MTC... Four or five weeks minimum. Uh, yeah. Well, it could be, yeah, three, three to four probably. Probably yeah. four. Okay. It's usually a run. 400-seat theatre. Um, it's, you know, it's 70% subscribers, so you've sort of got a guaranteed audience. Yes, yes. Um, there's a lot of trust that comes with Melbourne Theatre Company Productions, i.e. those that subscriber-based trusts their selection, so they go along. Right, okay. And then the rest of the, you know, the rest of the 30% is people that will just be sort of like hooked in by whatever it is. Yes. So if you're lucky enough to get um, your play produced by MTC, for example, that's a great gig. You might get be a hundred grand richer for that. <laughs> wow! Yeah, but there's only a select few that there's that can only happen a select to. Select few, yeah, exactly. But you know, that's if I'd stayed on the theatre path, right? And I'd, I'd because the reason I left it was poverty. I, I even though I had, I had, I, I reached sort of a level where it was fa- looking fantastic on paper. So it was like I had a. a a play produced at the Adelaide Festival and that went to Malthouse. The same year I think I had it was a collaboration, a musical I co wrote with a, a composer called Anthony Crowley that was produced in up in Nida. So we were looking great on paper, fabulous, fantastic. But I think I still only made eight grand that year in terms of as a as a writer, only eight grand. Wow. And 
I just thought, I just, you know, I was, my satin was returning. You know what I mean when I say that? So I was hitting about 27, 28, and that's supposed to be the period in your life when you're going, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? You get okay. nervous because you can see your 30s approaching and you're going, I should be settled, I should be, you know, I should be respectable by this point. So this happens to a lot of people about that time, right? Very... Perhaps it did with you. I don't know. It's the quarter life crisis, sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's called your Saturn is returning. It's okay. some astrological thing. Who is knows it? What it means. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so I was having feeling that, and that, and I just about that point, I went, I've just got to get into television. It's the only way I'm going to make a bark. So you struggled for your art as a playwright for what seven, eight years? Then? Yeah, I suppose so. My twenties. Yeah, they were poor. Yeah. yeah, they were poor. But was there one moment in time where you woke up in the morning and you went? I've got to do something about this. Was there an exact moment? No, it was a gradual awakening. So I had been trying to get onto TV shows since I was about 23 uh, and being knocked back all the time. And I kept trying to get onto things like Chances, you know, if you remember. Yes, I remember Chances. That was on a fantastic show. Um, E Street was on. There was more soap operas happening then. And I've always recognised. I like soap as a form. Can you tell? Yes, you're uh, passionate about it. I do. I love soap. I've always liked the – I like being addicted. I've got a very addictive personality. So I like addicting others too. I'm a pusher. I'm happy to push them, getting hooked on stories and characters. So I knew that was a really good way in, and it's something we do very well in this country. We always have, and I, I hope we always will. We yes. just we're very good at melodrama. So I just saw that's the way in, and I'd got a, I'm slightly ashamed to say it. I, I saw Neighbours as an also also ran sort of show. I didn't respect it much. And is is that because it had been going for a while, no. or you thought it might have been a little bit daggy? I just thought it was shite. Okay, but I might add, I wasn't looking at it. I wasn't watching it. I hadn't addicted myself to it. Right. I hadn't allowed myself to to really just feel what it is. And it was only when I really did that and spent a, a concerted six months like watching it every night, and then I felt I felt something. You talk about that wake up moment, right? What I felt was I suddenly went, oh. God, I've got to, I've got to get home by six thirty. I want to have to know what's going to happen to Toadie. You know. Okay, that's I, a moment. That's the moment when yes. I really realised I was hooked on it and I cared. So, how did you get your big break into TV? Uh, it was on Neighbours, writing scripts initially. Um, persistence, um, good timing, um, attitude change. I, I'd st- I was hooked and I'd started to really like the show and like the characters that was the that was the magic moment of actually realizing they were funny and actually really hearing their voices realizing that they had distinct voices and that they had certain things certain ways that the characters spoke and realized I could do it so they do they probably still do but they did then script submission processes you could contact them and say can I do a sample script for you and they would let you do that right and I did one and that that got me in you did one so uh, I did two actually the first okay. one was terrible right and did they I, give you feedback on that yeah they told me it was shy okay. yeah and, <laughs> that's all they gave you well it wasn't phrased quite that way but I you know that's the way I chose to interpret it right <clears throat> but that was because I I was arrogant and I hadn't taken it seriously and I didn't think it was a good show and I just had that sort of thing on my brain saying, oh, anyone can do this. Well, no, they can't, and neither could I. But I could once I'd really had this attitude shift. So that that was my break, but I only stayed doing that for about six months before I got another break with the ABC. So this was maybe 96. Yes. And um, that was a job um, assessing scripts. 
Right, so from submissions from the general public. Yeah, this is something the ABC has to do because they're taxpayer-funded, right? Right. So um, Joe Schmo is sitting out there in Whoop Whoop, right, or has an idea for a TV show and writes it down and on the back of an envelope. He sends that into the ABC. Because the ABC is a taxpayer-funded entity, they will treat that with respect. They're not going to just tear it up and put it in the fire. They are going to respond to you Joe Schmo out there in the world, and they're going to they're going to give you some feedback about that. And does that still exist to this day? I imagine so. It's still taxpayer funded. There'd be someone who's wow. who's looking after that. So, but when I got there, there was a pile like this, and I'm really not kidding. About a, me- a meter high. It, yeah, it's a job that really nobody wants to do. And anyone that's sort of working, this is the drama department. It's a job that you really don't want to do. It's just, it, it just it, life's too short <laughs> to read some of these things. So it's usually someone that's that's hired for it, some entry level type thing. And, okay. uh, and that's what they, that's what they put me on was like dealing with that. What did you discover in that time? Oh, uh, bad and good writing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, what was so good about it was. Uh, a, it honed my diplomacy skills. So what I was required to do was write extremely diplomatic letters to these people right. saying what was good about their project, what was perhaps, you know, areas worth reconsideration. Notice how I phrased that. Okay. Yeah. Possible areas for future enhancement. Right. These, these are the words. These were these scripted are the words. sort of phrases I might have been coming out with. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and dealing with them nicely. So they did. So they felt like they were taken seriously, that they weren't being right. dismissed because that's, that's important to the ABC. Yeah. Um, but what I also saw was I, it made me – I was able to place myself on a spectrum of writers in terms of those who were really fantastic and those that were, you know, really not too blessed in the talent department, okay? So I was able to – I realised I was sort of, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the middle. You know, oh, right. So but, yeah. by reading these good and bad scripts, yeah. you were able to recognise where you sat in the yeah. pile. and realise, oh, God, I've got to aim for that. You know, you get some spectacularly good things. Um, often stuff that was official in terms of it was going through the development process with ABC, not just coming out of the blue. What was the best thing you read during your time? Um, oh, gee, I don't know. Well, I was I was there for the development of shows that ended up being made and so certainly some extraordinary writing talent that came through. So I was there from when Sea Change was put together. Talk to me about that. So Sea yeah. Change, and it's interesting um, – it's a commercial soap um, that we talk about, Neighbours, Home and Away. You don't often hear ABC and soap in the same. It's an ABC drama. Mm. So Sea Change was a drama, not a soap. Look, I'm going to call it a soap because I can't stand that sort of snobbery. Okay. But in the ABC, you won't hear them say that. No, they won't use that word. No, when I was there, you would the the, the most you could get out of them would be the, the term serial drama. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I look, just, just call a spade a spade. Yeah, Sea Change was a soap, um, but it was a it was a really good one, and it, it really spoke to the audience at the time. Um, which so it came out in the late nineties. It went through quite a long development process um, with its key. Um, we would have called we called them showrunners now, but we didn't call them that then. So that was Andrew Knight and Deb yes. Cox, yep. um, two titans of Aussie TV. They were only little mini titans then. Now they're true titans. Mm. This, this show helped make them become titans, really. Right. Um, but it was very personal to them both. Um, the humour was intrinsically them, which made it difficult for other writers to crack their humour. But So that was a challenge for others, including myself. Writers within the show. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was a hard one, that. Okay. Because um, it was particularly, yeah, yeah, very, yeah, it was very, quite, the humour was quite unique on Sea Change, yes. the way the characters interacted and the way they spoke. Uh, and that was very reflective of Deb Knight and Andrew, uh, Deb Cox and Andrew Knight, really. They 
yeah, it was them. Um, but it was a show that just came at the right time. It was speaking to the desire to, and it's interesting, I did the same thing, right? A desire to leave the rat race behind and go to a place that it's, that is almost in a time warp. Like it's a right. place that yep. in a way doesn't really exist, <laughs> but it exists in our minds yes. as a little ideal, a little ideal of what an Australian town should be. The dumbest thing that happened was that they um, stopped it. Um, After three seasons? Yeah, three seasons. Yes. It's a sort of show that seriously should be like, should be for drama what Four Corners is for current affairs, okay? It Just should not have stopped. Right. It shouldn't have stopped with the departure of the key creatives. So a- Andrew and Deb just got rung out. They'd had enough. Yep. If the ape, I, I, I really, because I was there for this, and okay. I remember the, the, the hand-wringing and the hair-pulling that was going behind the scenes for the ABC, they did not want to lose that show. They knew how important it was. They knew how much the audience loved it. It was the first ABC that had had a TV week cover in I don't know how long, probably 20 years, if not longer. Really? Right? When when something like TV Week is going, oh, my God, this is in the zeitgeist, you know, usually it's home and away on a cover yes. of the damn week. Yes. And I remember when, when Sea Change was on, it was like, oh, my God, you know, this is truly having impact. Yeah. <laughs> and the ratings were fantastic. Um, people just loved it. And commercial television was horrified. Channel 9 and Channel 7 in particular were mortified. Uh, Channel 7 quickly got in some Sea Chains-esque shows. Always Greener? Was Always that? Greener was the first one, yep. which was a good show. Yep. Um, and then really that birthed um, Pack to the Rafters. Okay. Yeah, which while was set in an urban environment, suburban environment, was again about an idealistic family, an ideal family, Aussie family that maybe weren't st- strictly representative of what we are now, but right. it was like something that we all sort of wished we were. <laughs> That's sort of what the Rafters family were. Got it. So, yeah, Sea Change paved the way for that. It really, it actually changed Australian television in terms of what we expected. It, it helped move us away from what had been up to that point, a very rigid type of thinking of, of what the Australian public would was prepared to consume. Right. So what they were apparently prepared to consume was hospital shows. Yes, Police shows <laughs> or legal shows, right? Okay, in terms of dramas, yep. and that was considered magic formulas, and we shall not deviate from those. Right. And the ABC had paid into that too, mm. but you know, then this show comes along, which is sort of a legal show, but not really. Mm. There's a case every week, but it's not really anything of. It's any a major fringe legal show. Fringe legal show. That's about the best you could call it. Yeah, yes. really, it was just about the the, the weird personalities in this little town. And they're, you know, they're heart-led stories. That's what was a big part right. of it too, which is soap opera thinking, even though we couldn't use that dirty word. Yes. Heart-led, yeah. So how long were you at Sea Change for then? Uh, well, that went for three years. So I was there for the, the whole, whole period, yeah. So I, the job I had was assistant commissioning editor for drama. Okay. So it started as, you know, going through that slush pile of, of submissions and that just, as so often happens, you know, it was I think it was I had six weeks I was supposed to just get rid of that pile. Six Did you week, do it? Yeah, but six weeks turned into... Six years, <laughs> just, but I got long got rid of the pile. Yes, know? and then just things just come up as happens. You know, you get a gig in in an organisation and they like you and you're keen and, and you, you stay. Know, yeah, you stay. Yeah, the opportunities get thrown at you and you just take them. You left after six years. Yeah, I did. And you had something lined up or not? Yeah, neighbours. <laughs> uh, okay, so straight back to neighbours. I did. I went, but on different terms, not as a writer. I had been working on another show called Something in the Air. I yes. was doing that. That was happening around about the same time as Sea Change. That was the ABC's 
um, and they've done a few of these, uh, attempt to do a nightly soap, okay, and they yeah. were, and it ran for about two years. So I, I had the job of what was called script executive, which meant I represented the network's, um, the network's needs in, okay. in everything to do with the script, right? Right. And um, in order to really perfect um, my understanding of the form, I had addicted myself not only to Neighbours but also Home and Away. So I was completely across the Aussie nightly soap. I really knew it. Yeah, you're the guy. You're the go-to well, guy. Well, I just thought, yeah, well, I just just knew it. It wasn't, yeah, I just knew the form. I was just completely submerged and I understood it, right? And I was looking at something in the air and, well, it had some very good things on it. You weren't going to find a good twin, evil twin story on that. Definitely. There was a lot of things you weren't going to find. You weren't going to find a lot of soap gold, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. And that's a phrase I have use a lot and continue to use, right? Soap, Soap gold. gold. yeah. <laughs> and it's just the, it's the type of storyline that is just a heart punch for an audience, a heart punch. Yeah, okay. Where you can, at various points along the story, really just kick them and they're going to love it because you bring it to such a peak of emotional intensity. Right. And we weren't getting a lot of those in something in the air. Yeah, And okay. it really frustrated me. It really frustrated me. And um, the, the I, was, I was a lone voice on that, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah. So that helped fan me going back to Neighbours. And I went back as a story editor and I came armed with a whole lot of soap gold. <laughs> there was a whole lot of soap classics that I wanted to do. I really wanted to get my teeth into. And, in fact, the first one I did was such a hoary chestnut, but it had a lot of impact. So um, get ready for this. The first one I did when I joined Neighbours again was I gave Susan amnesia. Really? I did. Okay. Yeah. I, was, I, I convinced the executive producer. I didn't even call it amnesia. I think I called it memory loss because <laughs> amnesia, you know, that's a dirty word. Yes. <laughs> Um, but not in Soapland. You know, it was a, it's a soap classic, right? And okay. it's the sort of thing that you would see in Days of Our Lives. Yes. You know, in yep. pre- every week in Days of Our Lives. But, yep. um, but for me it was like, well, we should acknowledge what we are. Let's not pretend. Because I was sick of the ABC shows pretending they weren't... Soaps. Soaps. Yep. You know, what's the point? Um, so I went and coming to Neighbours, I, I had a, few, a whole stack of things I wanted to do, but that was one of them. I just said, let's just do a really good job of this. Yes. Let's make a bloody kick-ass amnesia story. We, and it ran for nine months. Susan lost her memory for nine months. She, How did she get it back? Um, I think Carl Kissinger might have had something to do with it. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I can tell you how she lost it, right? Yeah. She slipped on the kitchen floor in some spilled milk, okay? <laughs> really? Yeah, she dropped some milk and she slipped over on it, right? She okay. banged her head. And there was this fantastic sort of aerial shot looking down at Susan in her pyjamas in this beautiful white pool of milk and she's oh. unconscious. I remember that was the cliffy, right? It was fantastic. That was is gorgeous. soap gold. Cinematic, yeah, soap gold. <laughs> And when she woke up, um, in the next episode, she had no memory beyond the age of 15. So it was a, a, an exquisite challenge for Jackie Woodburn, who now had to sort of play the part. And hats off to her. She was so into it. Yes. Um, had to play it as if a 15-year-old version of the character, right? <laughs> she couldn't remember. So she couldn't remember a kid. She didn't know who they were. She had no memory of them. She couldn't wow. remember Carl. Who's, who are you? I don't know you. You're awful. What a this great storyline. Yes, Luke. It was. It was really fun. It was great. And... Um, I don't want to flatter myself, but I think I think it brought the team with me. They started, it was like a it was a, it was a, a recalibration of, of of among everyone of thinking, okay, all right, this is what we're doing, isn't it? It was like it, I, when I came in, it was like people had forgotten. The show right. was going through a very very safe period. Okay, and there was a very very safe executive producer at that point who's no longer with us. G'day, Stan. 
and um, he left the he left the mortal coil. Yes, but he was a little bit too safe. He was too conservative. Right. Um, I mean, I didn't want to, you know, reinvent the wheel. But what mm. I wanted was just to go. We have friggin' are what we are, and let's have some fun with this because the audience wants to. They really do. I mean, I you look at UK soaps, for example, and that's a really important thing to have in your brain when you're working on Neighbours is because while the Australian audience is important, that UK audience is more of important? maximum importance. Okay. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. Because they are such crusted on fans. They're so passionate. We are making it for them. You Let's be honest. actually are. I mean, they keep it going. Yes. Um, and, you know, they haven't shunted the show off to a digital channel, you know. No, It's no. still on pa- maximum, you know, prime time. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but you look at the UK soaps and um, and you need to because that's the landscape the Neighbours is playing in. It's Coronation Street, it's EastEnders, it's Emmerdale. Yes. Hollyoaks, all these shows. Where stakes are always very, very high. Mm. Um, and they do, you know, they do big stories, and they—they're not—they'll do an amnesia story, but they'll do it in a very gritty way. Okay. Um, and we'll we'll do it in a sunny way, but we'll still do it, you know. Yes. So that was just, yeah, that awareness was just in my head. This is what an audience wants. So that period at Neighbours the second time round, mm-hmm. how long did that last, and what seven roles years. did you cast? Seven years. Yeah. So I was a story editor, and then um, I had a, I worked with a wonderful man who I still work with, Ben Michael Wright, who yes. who had been kicked out of the story editor's chair at this point and put into the script producer's chair and was not happy Okay, and resented me for turning up and sitting in the story editor's chair. Right. So I, you know, I guess I'm a politician. I worked out, what's, that, what's at the heart of this resentment here from you, Ben? Yeah. And realised what it was. He wanted to be in a story editor's chair. Right. And I thought, well, the, the job that you're doing, which at that point was the being the final hand that touched every script right. Okay. It's what was called the overwriting hand right, yes. that he was doing. I really wanted to do that because that, for me, was the ultimate power. <laughs> it was the ultimate right. god. Okay, it was great, and it just it just meant that. That sounds terrible. I don't mean that, but it was more <laughs> just it enabled me to have a consistency of the vision of the show of what it was. Right. So we swapped jobs. Okay, yeah, we got a new executive producer, a great man called Rick Pelizzari. Yes, came in, and we just went to him and said, "We want to swap jobs and sack us or accept this." Right. And he made it happen. He just saw that we were passionate and crazy. Brilliant. And liked that and also recognised that the show, because he didn't think the show was very good and then realised one of the reasons why it wasn't so good was that it was it was there was too much of a break on it from what had been a, quite a conservative executive producer. It actually needed to breathe more. Right, okay. It needed to be more fun, more playful, more outrageous at times because an audience will accept certain things, you know, if, in the name of entertainment they'll actually accept quite a lot. Even a good twin, evil twin. <laughs> Even that, yeah. So in that seven years, um, what what did you achieve and when did you think, okay, now it's time to move on? Oh, I was dynamited out there. I went mad, yeah. And they had to be taken out of the bat and shot. <laughs> Just yeah. crazy ideas. Yeah, yeah. The good twin, evil twin was the beginning of it. Um, I think Carmella, uh, when Carmella became a nun, that was also another one of my crazies. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. So Carmella had disappeared for a while. We hadn't seen her. Do you uh, sometimes wake up in a pool of sweat and just shake your head and go, oh, jeez, I wish I never put that idea forward? Mm, or is there any regret about what you wrote in TV? No. None whatsoever. What an excellent pause that was. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You, you're def- yeah, so no, when, when it's it. out there, it's produced, and you've come up with the idea, yeah, like it or hate it. it. It's the best it could be at the time. It's, yes. And, and there was nothing that – there wasn't a single script that – I, you know, let go into the world where I didn't feel that was fantastic. Seriously. 
uh, that was one of the the joys and the responsibilities of being the final hand that touched it right. Yeah. So every line was polished to perfection. I if, if I tried to make it as funny as it could be, as w- it was a witty period for the show. Right. I say, but it was. Um, yeah, because that's important. The show was funny. So everything we tried to do was the, it was a period when um, every episode had a pun title, right? We gave episode titles to the okay. show at that point. They don't do that anymore, right? But they did at this period, right? And every episode had like an appalling pun <laughs> based on something that happened in the storyline. You know, can you remember one of them? Oh crikey, there were so many, oh god, there was like hundreds, but oh god, they're all terrible too. But they were also funny. <laughs> yeah, they'll okay. come back to me, right? One will come to me, right? Yes, I should remember because I made them all up. Yeah, right. It was like one of my little. Bizarre tasks I set myself that, that every every week every episode. That's a had challenge a in title. itself. It was. It was. It was a it was a rod for my own back. But. And so the other shows then that you worked on in TV, um, how you you must have dipped in and out of those quite quickly. Mm. Like what periods of time? Um, so po- so I was dynamited out of Neighbours, but this is what happens in television, right? And particularly on a long term show where you get a team that's just you know has been there for a long time, right? Yeah. A, sh- a, a show needs to renew itself. It needs to refresh okay. itself. And we de- we needed new blood. Right. I couldn't have continued. I was recycling by the time I'd left. There. Okay. There's only so many stories in soap opera land, and while you can change the players, the stories themselves. You know, are inherently the same. Okay. So, um, yeah, we were getting to the recycling point. So it was definitely time for someone to come in. Um, So, you know, it's taken out. But I was, and I don't, and I'm not, I'm over that, by the way. You are, okay. I am over that. Yes. Um, (laughs) Pack your desk up. Well, I was already writing books. I had already started writing books while I was So the transition had happened. Yeah, it had in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Like I... I really, while I was at Neighbours, I really just got this idea in my mind that I, and this is the way I phrase it, right, that I should be writing airport fiction. Okay. That's okay, my Okay, that's a good it. definition. Yeah, it is. Airport fiction. Okay. So my favourite bookshops, right, the ones I love above all other bookshops are the ones that are at the airport. Right, because you find the best of the airport fiction there. Yeah, well, it's because everything that you're going to find there. A, all the covers are out, right? So you get they're not all like you know on a bookshelf. They're all out yes. when you go to a bookshelf. So you see these dazzling, you know, dazzling, dazzling, beautiful covers, right? But also everything has been carefully curated at an airport bookshop. There's nothing that's allowed at an airport bookshop that is not going to entertain you. Right. It is all it is all about passing time really well if you're on holiday or you're on a long flight. Okay. It's, you wouldn't believe the amount of thought that goes into what is on the shelves in an airport bookstore, right? Yeah. So there's all sorts of books that they won't stock. And just because something's a bestseller in, I don't know, in readings or something, it does not guarantee it's going to be at an airport bookstore. Interesting. And you've done actually research of your own yeah, on this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't tell you how long I've spent in bookstores over my life. I just really study them. So, you know, when I was going on a, on, on, on a leave from Neighbours, right, I was always completely wrung out and exhausted. And I, I would always anticipate the pleasure of going to an airport bookstore and buying three books or whatever. And I wouldn't have them with me. I'd buy them at the bookstore, right? And I'd anticipate that. Right. And I'd always make sure I got the airport early so that I could buy them and I'd spend time perusing what they would be. And after a while of just reading a lot of bestsellery sort of stuff, I just thought to myself, why aren't I doing this? Right. Why and was that I a light bulb this? moment Yeah, for it you? really was. Okay. Yeah. I, I just thought, I can do this. Okay. You know, I've... I've got that. I've got a commercial sensibility, and it's from working on Neighbours. That seriously is it. Of just what I was able to hone on on Ramsey Street was a real sense of what turns people on 
in terms of consumers of stories right. and consumers of characters, the sort of stuff that just has a hardwired effect to go straight to the heart or other parts of your anatomy and just really work. And yeah. So, it's look, it's amazing. To start off with, you've done, well, the fourth one's going to be released later this year. Yeah. Um, Den of Wolves, Nest of Vipers, which is a sequel to mm-hmm. that, yeah. and then The Secret Heiress. Yeah. So... What was the first sentence you wrote? <laughs> oh crikey! For Den of Wolves, I can't remember that because the the opening character, the opening chapters of the things that gets reworked more than anything else, right? Right. Whenever you, whenever you, uh, whenever I as a writer uh, stray towards procrastination, I go back to the first page and fiddle with the sentences. I couldn't tell you how that book begins. I couldn't even remember it. Give me a brief synopsis of that one. Okay. It's like the anti-Ramsey Street story, and it's no accident, okay? Okay. So um, Ramsey Street mainly is a pretty sunny place, and people are pretty nice. Yes. And mostly behave pretty well, okay? Mostly they're pretty good. Right. And at night, after in bed reading, right, I was reading ancient Roman history, okay? Okay. And I, and it, I can only look at it now and think, oh, I think it must have been a bit of an antidote, okay? Right. To Ramsey Street. Okay. Reading about people who were behaving appallingly <laughs> and had... Had work, whose motivations were nothing but venal. Right. Um, that is ancient Rome, right? And um, that just sort of started working its way into my brain. And I was reading um, uh, The Annals of Imperial Rome by Tacitus. It was written in the first century AD, okay? Jeez, it's good. You should read it. Like, it's How a, did you come across that? God, I'm educated. <laughs> You knew of it, its yeah. existence? I okay. went to university. Okay. I've got an English degree. Right. So it, it's a Penguin classic, right? Right. And um, it's it's like a it's a first century AD bestseller. It's wow. a bestseller. It's racy. It's outrageous. It's funny. And it's written in the first century AD. And so I read that. And it's, it's completely addictive. Uh, there's bits missing because that's what happens with ancient Roman manuscripts. So there's yes. entire chapters missing, which right. is a shame. But anyway. But well, you can make your own story up. Well, you can if you wish to. But certainly <laughs> what's there is absolutely compelling. Yeah. But one of the things that really intrigued me, right, was that a lot of the women who were in the story um, were doing things that seemed to be completely unmotivated. Like it was a very patriarchal society. It couldn't have been – it was horrendously – misogynist society, ancient Rome. Yes. So the actions of male figures were deeply explained and made a lot of psychological sense why they did things. But then conversely, the actions of women, female historical figures, were completely unexplained. Right. They'd just be, you know, they'd be written off as whores and murderers, right? Okay. And that really interested me because I just thought there was an alternate story to be told about these women that made their actions seem understandable. Right. They might have done some shocking things, but I, my mind was just going, I bet there was some really good reasons for it. Right, Their okay. society was pretty awful, and they were trying to just basically be like the blokes that oppressed them. Okay. So that was okay. my way in. So I wrote an alternate version of Tacitus, in a way. It's right. sort of what Den of Wolves and Nest of Vipers is. It's um, the story of the women behind the men of ancient Rome, and what they were doing and why they were doing it and how they were managing to survive. That's really what the books are all about, really. And you kind of start thinking about why you've been explaining that. Why hasn't anyone else done that? I don't know. But I'm glad they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> that was your way in. And, yeah. and did you know much about publishing books um, no. prior to that time? Like you wrote it, as I guess most writers do, um, of novels. 
you wrote it on spec? No. Oh, you didn't? No. You, you had a deal lined up, did you? Um, yeah, oh, this is what I did, all right. So I went along to a little course that the CAE were running. Really? Hey, how about that, all right? And it was being run out of Holmes Glen TAFE. Okay. And it was uh, how to get published, and it was like a little weekend course. Yes. But as it turned out, it was really, really good. Okay. And it just, um, it just made me think about how I was going to go about this, right? So one thing it made me realise was that do not just write a novel on spec. Don't do that. Okay. Don't put yourself through that. Right. right. Write a bit of it and make sure that bit of it is as good as it can possibly be. It's a, like a little sample, a okay. taster yep. of what you are capable of. Would and, it would it be one of your 20 chapters that you would put forward or is it an amalgam of the 20 put into one um, short chapter? No, it was. It ended up being one of the chapters, definitely. Yeah, okay. it, but it wasn't the beginning. It just ended up somewhere in the first third of the novel ultimately. But it was, I, I just... I just it was, I guess it was my way into the story. I just began writing it, and it was racy, um, it was sexy, and it was it was violent. Okay. So it, I wrote these novels with quite specific reader experience in mind. It would be sexy and it would be violent. Okay. Okay. Very not neighbours. Yes. Okay. Very yeah. not neighbours. A specific thing. I don't want to. I don't do that anymore as a novelist. But okay. for those books, that's really what I was aiming to do. Right. A really clear reader experience. Yeah, okay. Um, and I used that to get a, a literary agent, which I didn't have. So a literary agent is specific for the publishing world. Yes. I didn't have any contacts in publishing. I didn't know really how it worked yes. beyond what I'd been told in this little short weekend course. Right. But what I picked up was use this little sexy chapter as a, a little dangling carrot to get an agent and then they will use it if they like the sound of what you're doing to get a publisher on board. Okay, so the agent is the way through rather it's, than okay. Yeah, it's okay. absolutely the way through. Yeah. For if you're writing fiction. Just because uh, there's a lot of people that want to be published, there's a lot yes. of people and there's a lot of people who aren't going about it quite as scientifically to be honest with okay. you. Yeah. Um yeah, people who are just spending a great deal of effort and and uh, subsequently feeling a great deal of frustration. Right, and spending two years of their life yeah. writing something that they shouldn't have spent two years on. Well, yeah, I, you've got to do. It's so important to do your research and know, have a real sense of where the book you might be intending to write might sit in that airport bookstore. Got it. Or if that's not your thing, where it might sit in Dimmicks and Collins Street, you yes. know, or Readings and Carlton. Yeah, okay. It's Yeah, it, it's essential actually to really be able to visualise what shelf they're going to put your book on. And I don't mean the alphabetical shelf. I, yes. mean, I mean, what section is it going to be on? So I, this is something I tell my students all the time is to spend half a day at Dimmicks in Collins Street, okay. right? And just soak it up. Yeah. And visualise, where are you? Where are you going to be? Which section do you belong in? And then look at that and look who else is presently in the section. Who is there? And what are they doing? And you can tell exactly what they're doing from the back of the book. Yes. And the cover. It'll tell you everything you need to know. You don't need to read the book. Okay. You can just look at the back and look at the front. That's going to give you everything. The front will always immediately tell you what the genre it is, yes. where it belongs. It will also tell you who is likely to pick it up and okay. read it, all right? Um, so I write books that are intended primarily, but not exclusively, but primarily for women. Yes. I feel I know that audience because that was the audience that primarily consumed Neighbours. Right. Not exclusively, but the larger proportion. And that's a really good audience. That's a really good readership. They're very loyal. They stick to old technologies. Okay. They will still read books. 
Yeah. Um, and it's women of a certain age are the larger buyers. Okay. Okay. And by that I mean 35 up. Right. Okay. But not exclusively, again. Okay. Not exclusively. There's no absolutes and no generalisations that you can really stick to. But what you can do is get a an inkling, a sense of who is likely to come and get this. All right. So covers are often the big clue to that. It'll be a it'll be a It'll be an attractive young woman, for example. Yes. It's amazing how many covers have an attractive young woman on them. And right. they're not designed for men to buy them. <laughs> they're designed yeah, okay. for women to project themselves into that person. That's really what it's about. Wow. They look at them on the cover and go, that's, that's, I feel like I want to be her. I want to live her life. And whereabouts are you in bookstores and are you where you wanted to be? Yeah, I am. I'm with that crowd. Yeah. So my books... Uh, have young women on them and my my protagonists are young women specifically for that reason that that's the audience that's the that's the readership so the reason why i wrote that little sample chapter to begin with right and the reason why i dangle it in front of an agent and it took me a few goes with an agent before i got the one that went oh yes i'll have that that's fantastic right yeah. I think it took me about five goes okay yeah um but the reason i did that was if the carrot was not bitten and nobody wanted it, I wasn't going to write the book. Right, I would okay. have gone and thought of something else to do, another okay. type of book instead. I did not want to waste my time on something that went nowhere. I only wanted it to – I just wanted to be in the in the airport bookstore, and it was. Um, in a lot of ways, you – like your career, and I kind of think about what people do with, with their jobs these days, you've been a writer your whole life. Mm. And there's not many people that do that. Maybe not. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are. Well, the, but, maybe that that we really um, that are household names, and you know, it's I don't know. Are you a household name? No. In, okay. I don't consider myself one. Um, I'm just someone that just gets on with it. Yeah. So I look, I know I've got a readership, but I doubt if they remember my name particularly. I think they just read the books. So it's the story, not like they're not picking so. up your next one because you you wrote it, or that there'd be some kind of connection. Well, they might surprise surely. me. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the next book that's coming out this this year, right? But, yes. Um, uh, there may be. I'm prepared to to discover that, but I I actually. I, I suspect it's simply on a book-by-book book basis, and I think it is probably for most writers, and not, apart from those who are absolute name brands. Yes. Um, I think it's more often it's – a lot of book buying is spontaneous by people. They see a cover, they like the look of it. There's a blurb, they like the blurb. They pick – that's enough for them to pick it up. They read the back and just something about key words mm. in the blurb, not necessarily the blurb itself, but key okay. words – Make Jump them out. just hold it to their chest and suddenly they're at the counter and they're buying it. Okay. That's the experience yeah. of buying. Yeah. So I like that. I think that's really wonderful. But it's really a great thing to have in your head as a writer that that's the way it's probably going to happen. How do you judge success? Like uh, is it mm. the fact that you're about to have a fourth um, novel published? Uh, is it, you know, the amount of book sales? Like how do you... Um, justify how, how do you best um, I guess compute what success is in your industry mm, that's a goodie well I divorce myself from the money side of things but let me just phrase that all right I'm not hooked up on what I might be earning anymore I don't think about that that much because if I did it if I did I wouldn't be thinking about the stories or the characters in the way that I should be. Okay. Right? okay. I might end up being too clinical, too cynical about it. And there are writers, I think, who are like that. 
James Patterson's an example, all right? Very successful writer, okay? A thriller writer, American. Yes. He's a factory. He produces four books a year. And one of the ways that four... How, how does that happen? The way he does it is that he couples up with another writer who is not a name writer. And he's got a lot of them, a whole collection of these people, right? Okay. Who are all excellent thriller writers. And he sits around a table and he shoots ideas with them, right? A bit like a story room in a soap, okay? Yeah. They shoot ideas around. Mm. And then he sends them off and they write it. And then they bring the manuscript back and then he fiddles around with it, right, and has a bit of a fiddle and sends them off again they do another draft. This is his fascinating method. And puts his name on it. Puts his name on it. And so if you look at a book from James Patterson, it'll say on it, James Patterson. It'll be this huge name. And then under the bottom it'll say, and Maxine Elliott or whoever. You know, it'll be some tiny little name. Maxine's done all the damn work. It's like he's the editor. Yeah, he is. He's a factory. He's a machine. Now... How does that work from other writers looking at that? Do they kind of go, well, are you really writing it? Well, yeah. Is your name Well, many are probably looking at that going, going, well, some are probably looking at that going, wow, that's fantastic. And I've got to say I admire that. I admire that he's turned himself into such an industry, but I question whether he feels anything for these books anymore. Right, okay. And this is the trap, and I know it's a trap for me. If I'm not... If I'm not going to feel it, it's pointless doing it because it is, it's a hard slog. I'm not James Patterson. I haven't got a team of buggers that I can bring in. Yeah. I've got to do it. And there are times in writing, and this, they are the hardest things I've ever written, ever, is to write. A soap is nothing compared to how hard it is to do a novel, to sustain that effort because it's only my brain. I don't have the, the luxury of bouncing around with other people, which I did on a soap, yes, yeah. of geniuses and fabulous funny people. I don't. It's just me. So I've just got to slog it out. And there are some times when I just, you know, I could set fire to the thing. I hate it so much. <laughs> but I just persevere. I just have to persevere. So that's the discipline of TV writing. It's just made me just, just keep going, keep going. And I do. But the way to keep going is to really feel it. So the one I've just written, which is called The Heart of the Ritz, yes, which will be coming out this year, um, 2019, um, I have never had such an emotional experience in my writing in my life as this particular book. Okay. It was so heartfelt um, and it was such a, yeah, it was often devastating. So it's about, um, it's about the French resistance. It's set in Paris at the Ritz Hotel during the period when the Nazis occupied Paris in the Second World War. Right. And I just sort of flowed into this particular subject area just through my general reading. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of history. And I was just – I just um, somehow ended up reading a history of the Ritz Hotel. And um, it was the World War II period that just – I just couldn't believe what I was reading. What I discovered was and what I've subsequently written about is the the Ritz, very famous establishment, was taken over by the Nazis when the Nazis rolled into Paris. Right. They occupied half of the hotel – and the other half of the hotel they left for the long-term French guests and other nationalities to continue living in. Okay. So there's this weird situation of Nazis and celebrities and bohemians and famous artists and writers and fashion designers all living cheek by jowl, side by side in the same hotel. Really? And the Nazis were like the top command. The, the People like Hermann Goring, for example, who was the head of the Luftwaffe, um, the, the worst of the Nazis, um, carrying on and having a fantastic time and socialising with people like Coco Chanel, um, who were there at the hotel at the same time. Right. But what the Nazis didn't know, idiot Nazis, right, was that the 
a significant proportion of the guests and the staff were engaged in extraordinary espionage activities. <laughs> they were spying on them. Really? And they were relaying all this information to the Free French Army, to the British, to the Allied forces. They were doing incredible things. Wow. They were hiding Jews and airmen uh, and Allied airmen up in the attic. <laughs> Um, they were printing out um, pr- proper anti-Nazi propaganda leaflets. All these amazing things were happening in the Ritz Hotel. But on the surface, it seemed, you know, just the epitome of glamour and mm. excitement. But behind the scenes, it was like hardcore resistance stuff. So I just, when I sort of stumbled upon this and put it through my story mill. Yes. And um, so I've done a It's both fiction and this is what the nice thing is about writing historical fiction. Remember that it is fiction. Mm. So you get a lot of license. So yeah. I have. It's fictionised, but I've used real-life characters and sure. mix them in with fictionals. But it is the story of that, of what it was like to be in the Ritz Hotel, suddenly realising that this Nazi menace could not be allowed to go on, feeling the, the desire to fight back. Mm. My characters are marginalised people. I've all, I've write about women because I've I get a, lot, a strong sense of empathy with what it is to be marginalised. I I feel I get that right. Yeah. So my characters are four women who are apparently from privileged backgrounds, but when the Nazis sort of show up, they sort of lose the lot. They've got nothing. They lose everything. Wow. Privilege and money. So this sort of drives them into doing what for them seems extremely unlikely, which is they're wealthy women, they're privileged, pampered women, but they decide to fight back. Fantastic. Yeah. And so on from that, what what are you expecting? Do you, do you kind of expect as each novel comes out to sell more of the of the new one than you have of the previous one. Oh, ones. hopefully, yeah. That, that's the theory. Yeah. And has that happened for the, the previous three? Yeah, I guess so. The, the Secret Heiress did really well in Australia. Like, it really found an audience. And that that novel was set in Australia. Um, okay. Um, but what it... Yeah, and it also sold really well, and this is bizarre, in Russia. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Rush... From a Russian perspective, Australians, Australia is very exotic. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so... There is a there's a there's a a precedent of Australian novelists finding their work being published in Russia, for example. Oh, okay. But particularly the historical stuff, they yeah, just, right. they dislike it. I think they just put it in a similar camp to American Western sort of stories. You know? Right. They, okay. they view it in a similar way. But anyway, so that did well, but um, it didn't get into as many international um, markets as I would have liked. Whereas my ancient Roman books went that got translated into five languages. And, wow. And, and I think it's just because there's a certain type of European culture that really likes Roman stories. Yeah. It's not every culture. Okay. But I'm big in Serbia. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's hysterical. Have you done any book signings internationally? There's another myth I'd like to explode. Okay. Okay. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Okay. All right. It doesn't happen. I've never had a book launch. Um, I've never been to a signing. Um, <laughs> no. No. Most novelists don't have that experience. It just doesn't happen. Really? Yeah. You, you, just you a- expect that it would. Of course you do. That's the myth you buy into. Then you discover this very different reality when you actually are published. So publishing is very lean and mean these days. Yeah. Um, in the publishing houses themselves, you'd be amazed at how few staff there actually are. Yes. They're really – and they're, they're very efficient. So they don't splash money around on every author giving them all these lavish launches and book tours. It doesn't happen. <laughs> There's a few at the very top who are getting that. But most authors – and that is the largest proportion of the books that are being put out there – are just put out by people who are just at home doing it, right? Yes. But doing it with passion. 
Um, if they have a launch, they're going to pay for it themselves. If they're going to go on a tour, they're paying it for themselves. Mm. And I'm a, you know, I'm a notorious tightwad. I'm not paying for any of that. <laughs> no way. No, no. So for me, the launch is seeing it on the shelves. Okay. okay. And that is That's as beyond good as rewarding. Yeah. Oh, but it is actually, yeah, it's beyond rewarding. Yeah, I can't tell be. you how nice it is to go into Big W, yeah. right, which sells more books than any other store in Australia. Does it? Yeah. Okay. Big W is where it's at, right? Wow. They shift so much. Yeah, right. So you go into Big W and to see a pile of my books at Big W, it's just oh, beautiful. <laughs> I could die now happy, I said. <laughs> now, you spend your time lecturing um, at the Victorian College of the Arts. What is the future for Luke Devonish? Um, beyond lecturing, beyond living a very idealistic uh, lifestyle in Castlemaine, <laughs> um, what, what's next? I'm going to continue. I love lecturing. I get so much out of it. Um, so I've been this. This is my seventh year teaching uh, screenwriting at the um, at the School of Film and Television. Yes, at the VCA, which is part of the University of Melbourne these days. Right. So I've been there seven years. I love it. I uh, I coordinate first year of the screenwriting degree. So I get I get what I call the sponges come in. Um, okay. And they're great. So I get people, many of whom are school leavers, but not all of them. Some mm. of them have been around for a bit, but. The wonderful thing about first years is they're just they're just very keen and spongy. They're, yeah. They don't have a lot of built-in expectations, essentially, apart right. from just they like writing. So I always see usually versions of myself, at the, you know, at their particular ages is what I really respond to when because yeah. I do the interviewing, the whole assessment. Oh, thing. you do. Yeah. Okay, it's um there's a few hurdles to get into the VCA, but they're it, they're worth surmounting. Yeah, into, yeah, yeah. It's yeah you have to go through an assessment process, but it's it's worth doing. So the lecturing, and uh, have you thought, obviously you got involved in Vincent, um, you know, way way back when. Yeah. That was an a cappella opera? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that was something I wrote with Anthony Crowley, who That's was a right. composer I did a few shows with, yeah. And I remember seeing one of his musicals oh, at St Martin's Theatre in South Yarra. Mm-hmm. Um the Wild Blue, does that Oh, okay. Sound right? Yeah, I do remember that. I wasn't part of that one, but I know the one you're talking about. Would we see you potentially writing some musical theatre down the track? No. <laughs> do you want some more time to answer that one? No, I think I'm pretty clear on that. Okay. Yeah. So then what next? What are we doing? Okay, I don't want to do collaborations much anymore. Okay. That's, this is the reason for it. Yeah. So um, I think I'm collaborated out. I think I've done it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, while it is, be, I really like working with others. Don't get me wrong. Okay? Yeah. I, re- I find that process wonderfully stimulating. But for me, the Uber collaboration was Neighbours. And after that, I... Uh, I didn't enjoy any other collaborations I did as much afterwards. Yeah. And But what I was really enjoying was the, producing the thing that was entirely me, which is what mm, a novel is. Yeah, right. right. Um, where there's, I, I stand or fall, there it is. You know, my name's on it. No one else has got their name on it. And as hard as it is, it is also, for me, the most satisfying thing is to know that that is completely me. There I am on the – there I am. There's, you know, 600 pages. That's me. Wow. So the collaborations, I, I just don't want to. I don't want to. Oh, this sounds so arrogant. I can only apologise. <laughs> all right. I just don't want to compromise anymore. Fair enough. I just want to see my stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. So there are not going to be any more musicals, and they were really hard, mm. actually. Um, Anthony, I don't know. He, I don't know how he regards me these days, but there we. The last musical we did together, I, I think I, I, I had a, 
I had a hissy fit and a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and ended up leaving. And I think he ended up finishing the show. Wow. Um, but then, but that's, I think even at that point I was just feeling the similar thing of like, oh, I can't stand this collaborating. Yeah, I just okay. want to do me. I don't feel, I'm lost. I'm yeah, lost. Yeah, right. And this, is, this can be the experience of collaboration. Is yeah. That, you can find it hard to know where you are in the whole thing. Yeah, okay. So no more musicals. Is the that's why, that's why. Never. <laughs> <laughs> wow, strong words. Yeah. Now one last question: generic advice for anyone, regardless of age or talent. Uh, what do you have to do to become a writer? Have you heard of a computer? <laughs> Turn it on. And if you if that's a little bit beyond you. Go down to the news agents and pick up a, a notebook and a pen. That's all you need to do. But you've got to do a fair bit of it. So I'm sure we've all encountered people that say, oh, I'm a writer. You know, at parties usually when they've had a couple, right? Yeah. What do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. Okay, <laughs> right. And I'm sure you've, you know, in the course of the conversation, you've come to realise that this person may be claiming they're a writer, but they may not necessarily actually be a writer. And yes. what's, you know, usually fundamentally lacking is uh, the actual putting the pen to paper type thing. Okay. All right. So um, you've got you've to put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to do it, it's simply a matter of, of doing it. I forget who it was um, that said you've got to do 10,000 hours of something in order to be brilliant at it. Right. Who was that? I forget who it is. I think he's got a podcast too. Anyway, <laughs> his name will Everyone's come Everyone's got one now. Damn right. Very cool. <laughs> But yeah, so, so basically, start and stop procrastinating. That's pretty much it. And doesn't that apply to everything? I mean, really, True. if you want to be good at something, you've just got to damn well do it. Don't sit around walking. You know, don't sit around telling people, "Oh, I'm a writer." You know, just do it. It's not about telling; it's about doing. And there is simply no other better way than that. You come to understand what is good about about what you're doing. You come to you, you develop an instinct. It's a muscle. Yeah. You start to understand. And your way of gauging that is what is giving you joy. So what makes you – I've got this daggy thing. If I reach a certain sort of you know point of – if I get an epiphany in my work, right, where, I, where I've hit something which I've just – you know is so, to my mind, utterly fantastic, yeah. I have to jump up and down. And I seriously do. Right. I jump up and down flapping my hands around because it is such an expression of – it's such a moment of in- emotional intensity for me when I read. It doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. And, you know, in a book there might be only, you know, three or four moments where that is achieved. But I know the reader's going to have a similar reaction. They might not jump up and down, but they will get an emotional zing. So that's what you've got to go for. But you, that's a muscle you come to understand. The more yeah. you do it, you start to realise why what you're doing is good and why what you're doing in certain areas maybe isn't so good. You start yeah, to get okay. it. So, yes, you have to read as well. That's important. I, yes. can't, I can't tell you how what little patient I, patience I have for writers that don't read anything. Mm. And this most particularly applies to my students, and I'm sure they're going to be listening because I'll certainly be sharing this podcast <laughs> with them. But, um, yeah, look, the, you know, for anyone that I'm ever going to interview to get into the writing course of the VCA, there's this big trick question. What are you reading lately? You know? Right, and, the and number that trips of them, up a lot of people? Oh, does it ever. Yeah. It certainly shorts the, sorts the sheep from the goats. Yes. Those that aren't reading aren't at the VCA. I mean, the writers read. You just How else do you know what writers writing is if you're not picking up a damn book or something similar or a screenplay or something. So no patience for those that don't read. 
Thank you for being on the program. It's uh, I'm going to get one of your books. Um, Great. I've, I've got to start. Why or um, for? Well, I will. When? Tell me when it's actually being launched, your next book. Okay, the official window is uh, the 1st of September. However... We're recording this. In, are we allowed to say we're recording this? No. Oh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll say we're we're in early 2019. That's yeah. where we are. Right. Yep. Okay. So that's a fair way off. So uh, and in fact, um, as it, as of today, I finished the edited manuscript. Was so that was sent to me last week. I've been through it. Um, you know, it's everything the editor does to the work, and it's a it's a privilege and it's a beautiful thing what the editor will do yeah. in fiction. Right. It's wonderful. So I was very happy what the editor had done with me. Um, and so I reached the end and had a little cry and very pleased. So that's going back tomorrow to the publishers. Fantastic. So what it means is we're way ahead. We've got the cover design, you know, every, the blurb's been written, everything's all right. ready to go. So I'm hoping that it'll be sooner than 1st of September because that'd be nice. I can't wait to see it out there in the world. I appreciate how much, like, you have such a passion for, like, it's, um, I'm not going to say it's unusual, but... We've worked in film and TV for a long, long time. Um, you know, our paths have crossed briefly, but a lot of people are over it. They don't have the passion for it anymore, but it's just great in your chosen profession, which is as a writer and everything that that entails, that you are, after so many years, you're still passionate, mm. like fully passionate, even more passionate than when you started. It's mm. just, it's pleasing. It's I'm, really encouraging. That's lovely to hear. Look, I'm just hooked on it. I can't stop it. I just really dig entertaining people when it comes to through my writing, through yes. my words. You know, I just love the effect that that can have on people. I want to give people a good time with what I write. I don't want them to be bored. I want them to be really into it. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that is, and and when I when I get the validation that has occurred, you know, from whatever form that might be, if someone tells me or whatever, you know, it is. That's what keeps me going. That's the damn drug is the realisation this is working. People mm. are getting into this. That's why I've got no shame about my soap opera past. Yes. I just think of those 30 million people that were watching every day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. See, how could you not be hooked on that idea? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you again and um, br- brilliant to have you here. And um, your website is lukedevenish.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hopefully people can buy books from there. Uh, yeah, they can. There's links to all the books where they can be bought. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for appearing on the show and we'll be back next time on another episode of The Artiste. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground.